I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 11, The Long Secret History of Judaism, Part 1. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall I sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Psalm 137 from the King James Version of the Bible. The reggae group, the Melodians, released a track in 1970 based on the text of this psalm, later re-released on the soundtrack to the film The Harder They Come which was a pretty big album. The song was later redone into a disco hit by Boney M in 1978, entitled Rivers of Babylon, which went platinum. In the meantime, Don McLean, the American folk singer, put out an eerie banjo-driven take on the psalm on his album American Pie in 1972. Now, how does a psalm, that is, an ancient Hebrew poem collected in the Book of Psalms, part of the group of texts known as the Biblical Old Testament among Christians, or the Tanakh, or Torah of Moses, among Jews, how does a psalm about the sense of exile and hope for return of the displaced Hebrews, dating perhaps from around the 6th century BCE, come to make for platinum-selling pop material in the hands of a Caribbean-German disco troupe? The story is a very long one and a very peculiar one, and it is a story absolutely central to the story of Western cultures and, of course, of Western esotericism. In this episode, we're going to look a little bit at the history of the Jewish peoples, but to try to do justice to this rich and fascinating subject in a half-hour episode would be truly impossible even by the overconfident standards of this podcast, nor would it be particularly useful for our understanding of Western esotericism. So this won't be a history of the Jewish people or anything like that, but what we're going to do is try to make the essential points, which will allow us to go on to talk about the different elements of Jewish culture in the course of the podcast, which are essential to our narrative about Western esotericism. Naturally, you can't understand Kabbalah without understanding Judaism. But even more basic than that, how are we to understand Christianity without understanding Judaism? The origins of Christianity still arouse a lot of debate, and we can't say that it's a settled issue among historians what form the early Christian movement took exactly. But we can say with certainty that the cultic milieu in which Jesus and the other characters found in the Christian Bible, the New Testament, are living is a Greco-Roman Jewish milieu. They're Jews, in fact. Certainly their texts are Jewish, the prophecies which Jesus is said to fulfill are Jewish prophecies, and so on. But strangely, in the history of ideas, the importance of the Jews as a people takes second place to the central importance of Judaism and of its central texts, the Torah or Tanakh, the books known to Christians as the Old Testament. Our story is more than anything a story about this book. And considering that it might be the most influential book of all time, the Old Testament is remarkably unbook-like. It consists of a really complex collection of texts written over the course of an enormously long history. No one can actually agree how long, but preserving some elements from early-ish, you know, Bronze Age materials, and still being written and re-edited into the Hellenistic period. And it's not just that different books of the Torah were written at different times. So, you know, Book of Numbers, Book of 
kings, all these sorts of things, which obviously do arise at different periods. We also have the first books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are a complex mashup of different layers of texts within the books themselves, which clearly come from different stages of religious development for the Jews. We find different conceptions of the nature of the Jewish deity, and even different names for him, in the same book, and sometimes even switching from one sentence to the next. This is a complex textual situation, and no one can agree on who wrote what when. What scholars can agree on, and the only real voice of dissent here is from traditionally religious Jews, is that the Pentateuch, as well as the rest of the Torah, represents the final result of a very convoluted process of redaction or editing, where a lot of splicing occurred. The result is a mishmash of Bronze Age religious myths relating to the early Jews, or proto-Jews, a group of stateless pastoralists who aren't even what you'd call monotheistic, and we'll get to that in a minute, with later hardcore monotheist writings pertaining to a kingdom-based ethnicity with an elaborate priestly hierarchy and a centralized temple worship utterly unknown to the earlier layers of text. A funny candidate, you'd think, for the most important book in the world, but it is probably the most important book in the world. So how do we know about all these layers of text, you ask? I thought that the first five books of the Bible were supposed to be written by Moses. Well, gentle listener, I'm guessing you probably didn't actually think that these books were literally written by Moses. But until the 19th century in Gentile circles, and until today in some Orthodox Jewish circles, that is more or less the mainstream opinion. So how did people figure out that this probably wasn't true? I mean, there's the small problem that the end of Deuteronomy actually says, and then Moses died, and then some more stuff happened. So it's difficult to see how Moses could have written that bit, since he's dead. But folks have lived with that small problem for centuries without taking the step of saying, oh, Moses didn't actually write this, did he? I now have to resist with all my might my innate love of the history of the scholarship of texts, because we could easily devote a whole episode to an overview of biblical criticism and the story of how the Bible, once seen as a pretty unified book, was dismembered by scholars into layer upon layer of textual traditions which have been assembled over a long period of time through a complex process of editing. Trust me when I tell you there is a ridiculous amount of scholarship on this subject, but here's the very short version. In the 17th century, European scholars People like Thomas Hobbes, actually, began to point out funny things about the biblical texts. And we're talking here especially about the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, the five scrolls in Greek, are those first five books we mentioned earlier. These problems were things like God's name changing from Yahweh to Elohim, and different customs being attributed to the Jews at different times in ways that didn't quite make historical sense. And that thing about Moses dying and then going on to finish off Deuteronomy. What arose from these humble beginnings was a massive critical edifice known as the Higher Biblical Criticism, starting in earnest in the 18th century, but really hotting up in the 19th. By 1878, when Julius Wellhausen published his influential Geschichte Israels Band 1, later better known in English under the title Prolegomena to the History of Israel, it was an idea whose time had come. Wellhausen's book was a very influential argument for what is now known as the documentary hypothesis. This is the idea that the Pentateuch had been written based on a number of texts that were interpolated together, which can be reconstructed to some degree. These hypothetical texts are known as the Yahwist source, the Elohist source, the Deuteronomist source, and the Priestly source, or J-E-D-N-P for short. So the Yahwist, usually seen as the most primitive of the sources, writes about a god called 
Yahweh, the Elohist, writes about Elohim, also the God of Israel, but under a different name and with different characteristics, seemingly. The Deuteronomist is usually just seen as responsible for the law book Deuteronomy with its elaborate rules and regulations. And the priestly writer lived in the temple period, a later development in Jewish history, when there was a whole priestly class with its own interests, with a stake in the sacred texts, and possibly in sort of retconning the older texts to make them reflect the current priestly system and make it seem that things had always been as priestly as they were then. Wellhausen is the most famous representative of the documentary hypothesis in biblical criticism, which was for the 20th century the dominant school of thought, though it's nowadays falling out of favor in some circles. Recent academic publications question the existence of the Yahwist, for example, or adhere to other models such as the supplementary or fragmentary hypotheses. But for our purposes, they all agree on one thing. The core of the Hebrew canon, the Pentateuch, is some kind of compilation of very different materials which have been cut and pasted together. I have to rein myself in now because this stuff is fascinating, but it's a distraction from our task, which is more esoteric in nature. Now, there is a history attached to the people known as Jews, and it's a very different thing from the history of Judaism. But the two are interlaced in a very striking way because of the power of this text. The term Judaism derives from Judaismus, which is the Latinized form of the ancient Greek word Judaismos, which can be seen as coming from the verb Judaizdein, meaning to essentially be Jewish or act like a Jew or do Jewish type stuff, which goes back to the Hebrew Yehuda. That's Judah, as in Ja Dreadlock's Conquering Lion of, as mentioned in the reggae track Solid Foundation off the album Heart of the Congos, released by Lee Perry in 1977, perhaps the single greatest dubby reggae album ever recorded. Now, we'll be talking quite a bit about Hellenism in the course of this podcast. The term in the classical period, is it's a Greek term, and it refers basically to speaking Greek, but comes to reform more generally to a set of common Greek cultural tropes which spread all over the place in the Hellenistic period, after Alexander the Great does his thing and the Greeks start ruling big empires of non-Greek people. In late antiquity, it will also come to mean polytheist traditional religious practice, but that's a story for a later episode. Now, the term Judaismos first appears in the Hellenistic Greek text known as the Second Book of Maccabees in the 2nd century BCE. Judaismos is a coinage in parallel with Hellenismos. It doesn't mean Judaism in the modern sense. Rather, it refers to a collection of cultural tropes which were seen as being typical of a member of the people of Israel. And by its parallelism with Hellenismos, it seems to have an oppositional force opposed to Greekness. So the Maccabees texts tell of a rebellion that occurred in the Seleucid realm. That's the successor state to Alexander the Great, which controlled more or less the territory of the earlier Persian Empire. This rebellion was led by a clan of hardcore old-fashioned Jews, hearkening back to what they saw as a pure, uncorrupted Judaism. And all around them were Hellenophile Jews, who were assimilating horrible Greek practices like wearing hats with brims on them and eating pigs. So the second book of Maccabees presents us with a very interesting example of the kind of cultural dynamics of belonging and exile which crop up so much in the study of the history of the Jews and of Judaism. In this text, we see Greek-speaking Jews of the Eastern Mediterranean coining a word in Greek in a text written in Greek to insist on their cultural difference from the Greeks. Interesting. 
Now, scholars don't think that these Jews were hearkening back to what we might call the genuine historical ancient ways of their forefathers. Rather, they were hearkening back to the redacted history of the Jews presented in their textual and oral traditions, in which loads of stuff had been pushed back onto their forefathers, as we've seen. They were nostalgic for an age which never existed. So the history of Judaism is one which we can actually watch unfolding to some degree through the history of central Jewish texts. We can see the Jews reinventing themselves, at which point they really become the Jews that we recognize today. So who were these Jews, and how did they end up speaking Greek in the Hellenistic Seleucid realm, but at the same time vehemently insisting that they were somehow separate from the mainstream Hellenizing society of the Seleucid realm? Well, let's do a very quick historical timeline here, not because knowing about the early history of the Jewish people is of paramount importance for the history of Western esotericism, but because it provides some background for several enduring themes which are of central importance to our story. So the ancestors of the Jews, or the ancient Hebrew-speaking peoples of the Levant, who weren't called anything like Jews until much later, carved themselves a kingdom in the 11th or 10th centuries BCE, more or less where we find the modern state of Israel. A lot of our evidence for this kingdom comes from the Hebrew biblical texts, so we have problems immediately with its historicity, but this kingdom represents the glory days of the Hebrew culture, at least as the Hebrew culture represents itself through its texts. So we have King David and King Solomon, these legendary um, rulers of this united monarchy, and it's very much presented in the Hebrew texts as a glory days of Israel. What these people were up to before they came into this kingdom is the subject of much debate, but it seems certain that it involved pastoralism and some degree of wandering about in the Middle East. But with the kingdom period, the Jews develop a central temple-based cult for the first time. Now, this kingdom later split into two. The northern kingdom, Israel, was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BCE, while the smaller southern kingdom, the land of Judah, survived as a semi-independent client kingdom of the Assyrians. Then our old friends the Babylonians, who had previously been part of the Assyrian realm, had their own rebellion, took over the Assyrian state, and then in 586 BCE they conquered Judah as well. The Babylonians destroyed the temple at Jerusalem after the siege of Jerusalem of 587 BCE, ending the so-called first temple period of Judaism. Thus began what is known as the Babylonian captivity. These Jews, or proto-Jews, are forcibly deported to live in exile, and they compose Psalm 137, which we heard earlier, concerning their longing for their homeland of Israel Judah, also known as Zion. Then the Achaemenids, our old friend the Persians, conquered the Babylonians in 539 BCE, and they seem to have adopted a much more lenient policy toward the Jews, allowing them to return to their ancestral lands, which some of them did, and these returners set about rebuilding the temple at Jerusalem in around 537 BCE. This is what's known as the Second Temple Period. Some scholars date the composition of the first recognizable Jewish scriptures to this period. So, in other words, what we know as the Old Testament, the Jewish part of the Bible, was probably formed in this period, the Second Temple Period, under the suzerainty of the Persians. Then Alexander the Great conquers the Achaemenids, the Seleucid successor state of Alexander is eventually conquered by the Romans, and a group of hardliners attempts another rebellion, this time against the Romans, and the imperial armies come in and brutally destroy the hotbeds of the rebellion. The temple is again destroyed in 70 CE, and its treasures bought to Rome for the victory parade. This 
is the end of the Second Temple period. Are you with me so far? That's some history for you, and with it some fairly agreed upon dates. But what I've hidden from you in this little historical timeline is the extent to which the early Jewish history is based on late Jewish texts. As time goes by, we have more and more external sources. So for the Roman Jewish Wars, for example, we have numerous archaeological and textual records, a bit less for the building of the Second Temple, a bit less for the Babylonian captivity, and so on. But for the really early stuff, a lot of what we have to go on is what's found in the Old Testament itself which is a very, very confusing collection of texts, as we've mentioned. So many scholars, for example, would deny that the, the single kingdom of Israel, Judah, ruled by King David and so on, ever actually existed historically. But let's take stock here for a minute. We have, on the one hand, the Jewish people. These were a cultural and linguistic grouping, seemingly divided in the early period into large groups or tribes, who conquered themselves a kingdom in the Middle East ruled it for some years, and then saw it dismembered and gobbled up by their bigger neighbors, the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Macedonians, and then the Romans, and so on. During the Babylonian captivity, at least some of these proto-Jews held on to the memory of their former glory, and when, under the Persians, they were able to return home, they did so, and set up a central temple at Jerusalem, like unto the one which the Babylonians had destroyed, and recommenced operations. They were then conquered by various other folks, and so on down to the modern day. Now, how does Judaism, the religion, figure into all this? Well, this is where the stories of the Jews and of Judaism, as expressed in the text of the written Torah, come back together again. Our dating for the earliest materials in the Torah is really anyone's guess. A lot of it seems to be oral material coming from the early Iron Age, when the people of Israel actually lived in the kingdom of Israel. But even the dating for the composition of the texts more or less in the form that we have them is controversial. But it may come as a surprise how late it is. Some scholars want to place it, as I mentioned, in the Achaemenid period, while others opt for the Hellenistic. In other words, the history of the ancient Jews was in no way the history of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible is given its first recognizable form probably in the 6th century BCE at the earliest. But it is very concerned with the early history of the peoples of Israel, so much of the later story about who the Jews came from and what they did and so on was projected backwards onto the historical Jews. I hope that's all clear. The, the point I want to make here is that the story that the Jews have told themselves about who they are and where they come from is built on a very, very long and complex oral and textual tradition. But the form in which it now exists in Judaism is a very late creation. The most important result of this projection of more modern Jewish thought back onto the earliest ancestors of the Jews is one which has sort of bamboozled the Jews themselves and everyone observing the Jews ever since. This is the idea that the Jews were always and uniquely monotheist. Evidence from the Near Eastern context in which the people of Israel lived, the testimony of archaeology, but most of all, the so-called Yahwist writings within the Torah itself, all testify not to monotheism, the belief that there is only one God among the early Hebrew speakers, but to monolatry or henotheism, the belief that out of the many gods which exist, only one is worthy of worship, or in the case of the Jews, only one can be worshipped for contractual reasons. Thus, the emphasis on the covenant between Abraham and the God of Israel is not a denial of the existence of other gods. It's a deal that the Israelites would worship only that particular God, Yahweh, 
leaving aside all others, and that Yahweh in turn would look after them as a special chosen people. Monotheistic Judaism arises at a later date. During the Second Temple period seems to be a common scholarly estimate, though it's far from certain, as indeed it's far from certain exactly what constitutes monotheism, as we will see later in the podcast. But this is the era of Achaemenid conquest, up until the Romans demolished the Second Temple in 70 CE. Um, it's a long time in which to become monotheist, but the groups of Jews, at least the ones who later evolved into mainstream Judaism, seem to have done so in this period. Now, it was this monotheistic Judaism that really starts to resemble what we might call Judaism in its recognizable form as a relative of the kinds of Judaism still going on today. So this is a product of this later period. And for our purposes, Judaism really gets going with the rise of rabbinic Judaism. With rabbinic Judaism, we get into esoteric territory, finally. But before going there, let's look at this theme of exile found in the Jewish writings for a moment. The proto-Jews were kicked out of their kingdom, where they'd founded a temple cult based around a centralized priestly class. Then came the Babylonian exile. When some of them returned under the Achaemenid rulers, they were able to build a new temple and carry on with this centralized cult. But after the Romans destroyed the second temple, the Jews were in a bind. Without the temple, their religion really didn't function. The priestly writers and or redactors of the Torah had made sure of their absolute centrality to the cult of the people of Israel. Incidentally, we know of groups of Jews who didn't buy into this temple cult in the first place, such as the Jewish colony at Elephantine in Egypt, but it was the temple-based Judaism which would end up evolving into the mainstream Jewish tradition of today. So what were these Jews to do without their temple? One of the things they did, and which they continued to do in some cases, is lament the temple's loss and await a redeemer figure who will come and set things right, rebuilding the temple and refounding the Jewish kingdom. This is the figure of the Messiah. The Jewish Messiah is not like the Christian Messiah, whose kingdom is in heaven. The Jewish Messiah is an earthly king who will do very concrete things, like a bricks and mortar rebuild of the temple. Now this tradition of awaiting the Redeemer in Judaism arose out of the profound sense of loss experienced by elements of the Jews attached to their temple and the kingdom which housed it, along with the traumas of repeated sieges, sackings, and conquests by foreign military powers. The incredible memory for ancient losses and the incredible hope for a future redemption is a driving force of post-Second Temple Jewish thought. It helped give rise to Rabbinic Judaism, which we're getting to, and it also bore unsuspected fruit through its transformation by the Christian tradition. The Christians were already on the scene, actually, in some way, when the Romans raised Jerusalem. Though their movement was in its absolute infancy, we're talking about the first century CE, and as far as we can tell, resembled one among many Jewish sects, rather more than a separate religion at the time. Now, these Christians eventually came up with a novel twist on the themes of exile and redemption. The exile was spiritualized. It was no longer a geographical exile of a particular nation, but rather a spiritual exile from man's primordial perfection through original sin. And the Redeemer was no longer an earthly king set on founding a mundane kingdom, he was a divine emissary sent to bring about a spiritual kingdom transcending the mundane world altogether. These twin themes of exile and redemption have played a central role in Western culture. But, I would argue, they're also two of the most lasting and important legacies of rabbinic Judaism to Western esotericism. To take just one example, the late alchemical idea of the fallen state of nature and its need for redemption and purification 
of course, has a Christian background, but we can trace its origin all the way back to the Babylonian captivity and the longing of the exiled Jews for their lost kingdoms. When Boney M sings of the longing for the last homeland of Zion, we're reminded how far this trope has come since its origins in the forced deportation of an obscure Near Eastern people under the Babylonians in the early 7th century. So what is Rabbinic Judaism? The short version is as follows. Rabbinic Judaism, so-called because of the newfound prominence of the Ravi, the teacher, arose in this period following the Roman destruction of the temple and the revolt of Bar Kokhba in the 2nd century CE which was another attempt of um, very angry Jews to rise up against the Roman overlords, which also ended badly. Why is rabbinic Judaism significant for Western esotericism? For three main reasons. Firstly, these are the Jews. As far as both the Jewish experience up until modern times goes, and the ideas about the Jews promulgated by non-Jews, the rabbinic strand of Judaism is the normative position. There are strands of non-rabbinic Judaism, and some of them still exist, and I don't mean any disrespect to them, but um, the authors that we'll be dealing with, as well as the ideas which will be taken from Judaism and transformed by Christian and Islamic intellectuals in Western esotericism, are primarily rabbinic ideas and rabbinic tropes. Secondly, rabbinic Judaism is typified by a kind of textual exegesis, which is essential for the story of Western esotericism. The rabbinic period saw an explosion of texts. The Mishnah was compiled soon after the Bar Kokhba rebellion that I just mentioned in the second century. This Mishnah is an enormous collection of commentaries on the Torah, what you might call legal judgments by rabbis as to how the meanings of the original sacred texts should play out in the day-to-day -day lives of Jews. And the Mishnah is itself part of Torah, so that to use the term Torah to refer just to the biblical texts, as I've been doing in this podcast, is actually misleading. The Mishnah is seen in Rabbinic Judaism as an exposition of the oral Torah, which in essence goes back to Moses, just like the written Torah. So there were two revelations to Moses on Mount Sinai, the oral and the written, and the oral Torah is evolved through time and takes on textual form with the Mishnah. Now, the commentaries in the Mishnah also have commentaries, and these commentaries have commentaries, and so on. And the entire edifice of exegesis gains ever more layers and accretions. Now, Mishnah is part of the Talmud, an even vaster complex of texts compiled in our period, which also contains another section, Gemara, which consists of further interpretations and commentaries on the written Torah, and also on the Mishnah itself. And the Jewish texts started out pretty complex when we were just dealing with the so-called Old Testament, but from the rabbinic period it gets crazy complicated. This is especially important for Western esotericism because of the types of hermeneutics developed for reading these texts. So hermeneutics is a fancy way of saying interpretation, right? Rules of interpretation, styles of interpretation, what is seen as a proper way to read a text, what is seen as an improper way to read a text. Now, in order to make sense of such a huge mishmash of different texts, which often contradict each other on matters of fact and matters of detail and so on and so forth, while at the same time insisting that it all contains divinely revealed truth, you basically need esoteric interpretation. The surface meaning of the text may contain contradictions. So, for example, in the text of the Hebrew Old Testament, um, there's the famous story of David versus Goliath, and in two versions of this story, David kills Goliath, but in a third version, someone else kills Goliath. Little details like that which abound in this complicated text. 
The surface meanings of the text may contain contradictions, but an inner meaning can be excavated or imagined up, if you prefer, which smooths out the difficulties and finds a deeper unifying meaning. There's an esoteric reason why of the three accounts of the death of Goliath of Gath, two of them are attributed to David and the other one is attributed to some other dude. And this is very significant to the thoughtful Jew of the rabbinic period. Such an esoteric reader can also find pretty much whatever meanings they want to in the primary texts. The medieval esoteric movement of Kabbalah is in no way seen within Judaism as something outside of the primary revelation. On the contrary, Kabbalistic ideas are found within the text of the Torah itself, but hidden behind veils of esoteric meaning. One of the meanings of Kabbalah in the Christian esoteric traditions, once the Christians had sort of taken this term and had their way with it, is a type of interpretation which looks for esoteric meanings of a text through the numbers associated with letters, through anagrams, and other such linguistic manipulation. It's important to recognize here that these types of hermeneutic practice are not, in the first instance, Kabbalistic techniques in the Jewish context. They are mainstream rabbinic Jewish techniques for reading the scriptures. So the art of rabbinic reading, rereading, and creative misreading will be a huge factor in the development of esoteric hermeneutics down the ages. And through such authors as Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish Platonist philosopher of the first century and one of the most important and understudied Western esoteric thinkers, and Origen, the Christian Platonist, also woefully understudied in the field of Western esotericism, these types of reading enter into Christianity at a very early date, and undoubtedly also had much seminal influence on the later currents of Islamic letterism and esoteric interpretation of the Qur'an more generally. Finally, it is in rabbinic Judaism that we see the first movements within Judaism which might be seen as part of Western esotericism, properly speaking. These are the group of texts known as Hechelot and Merkava writings, which taken together give us glimpses into an early experiential approach to Jewish religiosity, which is often referred to as mysticism. With Hechelot mysticism, we are in full-blown Western esoteric territory, centuries before the coming of the Kabbalah, and the Kabbalah itself grew in part out of these earlier mystical traditions. We shall be returning to all of these currents in the course of the podcast, of course, but this episode has hopefully done the necessary due diligence of introducing the Jews and mentioning a few of the key themes, tropes, and practices which are of the essence for the study of Western esotericism. Next, we will be turning in a different direction, to a different religious tradition, but one with intriguing shared roots with Judaism in the practices of the Bronze Age Near East. So join us next time for the first episode in a series discussing the Greco-Roman mystery cults. And until then, let the uninitiated close their ears and the initiated stay esoteric. <laughs>